there is a bit of a chasm between requirements for building open source projects and those that are designed to be closed. Not surprisingly, it also requires a different set of skills altogether if you want to do it right. To learn more about this, I sat down with Jen Creighton, Senior Staff Open Source Engineer at Apollo GraphQL. Jen has been building scalable web experiences at companies such as Ralph Lauren, Chartbeat, and ClassPass, and is now leading the work on one of the most interesting and active open projects out there. Let's get to the show. Jen Creighton, welcome to the work item. Really excited to have you here. Hi, I am also very excited to be here. It's been, uh, <laughs> we rescheduled this a couple of times, <laughs> but I'm actually happy that this is happening. So for folks that are listening and they think, well, who is this awesome guest that we have on the show today? So Jen, tell us more about uh, what you're doing. So you're an OSS engineer at Apollo. Yes. What is that all about? So I specifically, I work at Apollo GraphQL on an open source project called Apollo Client. If you're using GraphQL on the front end, you probably use Apollo Client. And that's the project that I dedicate my 9 to 5 to. Tell us more about what is what is GraphQL exactly for folks that might not know, because it's uh, I know that when I used GitHub API, at some point they said there is a GraphQL endpoint. What is that all about? Yeah, so GraphQL is the new hotness, which I say with some sarcasm because it's not it's not new, but it is gaining more and more and more traction. So uh, GraphQL is a query language for your data. It, it's, it's kind of confusing. I totally get it. I didn't really understand what it was for a very long time, too, because it sounds very magical where people are like, you just build a query that is going to request your data. And voila, you get it. And I was like, no, no, no. How does this work? Sort of under the hood of this is one, this concept that all of your data that you want to grab out of your APIs is technically a graph, that it's all interconnected and you can make it into a graph structure. And that if you do that, you can then query that graph. Now, of course, you have to tell the you know, language how to query that graph. There are things called resolvers. But essentially, that's like the too long, don't read what GraphQL is. Instead of using REST, you might use GraphQL, and it's just a little bit different. So it's essentially SQL for the web, if you will, or <laughs> in my layman's terms version of it in some case. Kind of, yeah. Except it's important to note that like you could be getting your data from anywhere. So it doesn't have to be that you're getting it from a database you could be getting it from REST APIs that you're integrating into your GraphQL. You could be getting it from a database. You could be getting it from a JSON file, which I've done for like a quickly spun up GraphQL server. GraphQL is really agnostic about where you're actually querying the data from. It is like kind of SQL-ish in like how you're putting together, not necessarily like, well, somewhat. <laughs> You're putting together basically a query that's like, I would like the list of items here and I want them all to include their name and this URL. So we could make this podcast a crash course in GraphQL. <laughs> but I think the interesting things is your career. So you are an OSS engineer. Yes. And this is something that I've actually never talked about in this podcast is that there's engineers that work on internal projects. There's engineers that work on, I want to say like pr proprietary products, right? So. Yeah. The, the big companies, and then you're working in the open. What are kind of the biggest differences, I guess, between OSS engineering versus 
I'd say like internal proprietary engineering. Oh my gosh. I mean, the first thing is that normally, and this is probably the reason why you haven't had anyone yet on the podcast who does this, is that open source is unpaid normally, right? If you're working in open source, it's usually that you're giving up your free time on evenings and weekends to build something and craft something. And there's very few paid open source roles. Very few. For instance, one of the the big ones in JavaScript is the React team, right? React is an open source project at Facebook, but they are paid to maintain that project. And that's because Facebook has, you know, a clear, like they, they want to maintain React. They use it internally. They need to push it forward. It is their framework of choice. And while they're doing it, they're also giving it out to the world for free. Great. Uh, Apollo Client is something similar. It is an open source project that is backed by a company. The company actually has paid products. If you use GraphQL, we make products that make it easier for you to interact with your schema and creating that and creating a GraphQL endpoint. But a lot of people get to know Apollo through our open source work. So we pay people to invest in the open source work and make sure that Apollo Client is a library that people want to use. And same for our other open source projects like Apollo Server, for instance. And it is very different from product engineering. It is very, very different. I cannot emphasize this enough. For one thing, it does not always have a clear definition of what you're going to be working on. Whereas when I was a product engineer in UI, I had very clearly defined stories or we knew how to get all the information that we needed. Open source doesn't really have that. Um, Sometimes, occasionally, but for the most part, you are looking through issues that people have brought up or you're thinking about larger problems. You're doing a lot of research and development and a lot of stuff gets thrown out. The influx of people asking you for things is really high if you're on a popular project. So you just get this huge, huge influx of people asking for things. So yeah, it's very, very different. Now that you're bringing up a very interesting point that I actually have to think about. So (laughs) when you're working in the open, you do get a lot of feedback, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's open source, everyone assumes that I can just tell the team to do exactly what I need because I have this one edge case that I need this team to resolve because this tool kind of gets to what I'm trying to do. And the tricky part there is how do you balance that with the priorities of your own product team? Because in the case of Apollo Client, I'm sure you have your own priorities that you feel are you know, top five important things that we need to solve this quarter or this year. How do you balance that with community feedback where somebody is asking for more features or maybe a refactor of some other part of the tool how does it work? I always compare it to when when you see something on an application in the design and you go up to the designer and you say, I think we should add this button here. Ooh, okay. But like, are you the designer? Do you know why they did that? Instead of giving people the exact thing that you want them to change or add, it's better to give them a broad problem that you're having. Because once we get enough people having that broad problem, we will figure out a way to fix it for you. And we'll probably include the community in that fix. Uh, A lot of times, our main architect for the project, Ben, he will put out a PR about what he's thinking about as a fix for something that he's seen crop up in multiple issues. And he wants feedback on if that resolves people's issues. So if you have one 
like one-off thing and you're telling us specifically how to do it, we're probably not going to take that into consideration. But we are going to take into consideration that you're having a problem. And because we are the ones who are dealing with the influx of requests, we're like like trained to like look for like that problem appearing like multiple times. So as soon as we get an inkling that something is happening all over the place, we know that something isn't quite right and we need to fix something. Either provide a new API or documentation is missing or something's gone wrong. So that's usually how we balance it is actually by how often we're hearing the complaint, how many people are saying this is a problem. And sometimes we will get, of course, something that's like, yo, this is an absolute bug that needs to be fixed right away. And like, we will hop on it like as quickly as possible if it's like really something bad and, you know, we didn't mean to put it in there or someone's having some major, major issue that's blocking their app and there's no workaround, we'll hop on it. I promise you. <laughs> so essentially the difference between something is broken versus I want this other thing. Yes. And if I'm understanding correctly, the key that you're calling out is focus on the user scenario mm -hmm. instead of a specific need. You know, I want this button to be green instead of blue versus it's not an accessible color and my screen reader cannot pick it up. Yes, exactly. If you give us the, the broader problem that you're having, we know the library really well and we know what actually it'll take to get you something better. And we're so happy to have your input on what we decide actually is the thing that we want to fix. But if you're giving us like, a, I want exactly this API, well, then you might want to fork <laughs> because we're probably not going to do that. But I promise you that like, we have spent so long thinking about these problems, researching these problems. There is a wealth of knowledge on this very small team that is Apollo Client we can probably together with you come up with something better than what was the initial thing. And that's, I've always found that to be true whenever I go to a designer. What is your recipe for that healthy collaboration in the open with your community? One thing that comes to mind is if you are asking people to contribute open issues, open PRs, I've seen folks get over eager and they <laughs> see a product and they're like, you know what? I'll spend three weeks building this and I'll create a pull request. And here's my work, merge this. And then you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on a second. This, this is not quite what we're doing. But then you're running the risk of alienating this person because it's like, well, I worked on this thing. Your project was open. I had a pull request. And now you're telling me that I don't do it. What's your recipe for having a healthy collaboration culture? Okay, somewhere in my brain is this blog post that I have been thinking about for months since I started working on this project called maybe don't contribute to open source. And I really mean this in the nicest of ways because I think people misunderstand what open source is and what it means to contribute to open source. And that is not their fault, actually. It's, it's what we've been told, right? We've been telling people for years, contribute to open source. It's a great way to grow as an engineer. We totally forget all the caveats about that. If you stepped into your job on day one and decided you were just going to work on a thing without talking to anyone, spent three weeks on it, and then opened a pull request, like how do you how do you think that might go, right? Like it it's probably not what we were working on, probably didn't align with business objectives. Maybe you accidentally took work away from someone else. Open source is actually no different in that regard. 
especially when you're talking about um, open source that people spend, like it's a very like high value project that people are either paid to do or working on a lot in their free time. The truth is that to contribute to open source, you need to know the code base really well. And you need to know the people who are the maintainers really well, because they're the ones who can tell you if you're about to spend too long going down a rabbit hole, right? And not all open source projects are really good about tagging their issues with good full, good first pull request, or the size of this one isn't too bad, or actually having the time to have that back and forth with people. So a lot of times in open source, you'll open up a pull request and it will just languish because again, like tons of in influx coming in into the inbox issues, pull requests, comments, I have problems, I need this not enough maintainers or people who know the code base really well. So the healthiest thing is if you really do want to contribute to a project, take a good while to look around the project and see how big it is, how many pull requests they actually take, because maybe you can go ahead and get a sense that they don't really have the time for that sort of work, or the code base is like way more intense with like special little caveats everywhere that you wouldn't know. That happens all the time. And know that like, you do not have to contribute to open source. You don't. Like, it's okay. It's totally okay if you don't want to, if you don't have the time. Or just, like, take a take some lessons from it that don't require you to open a pull request. It's actually totally fine if you... I used to spend my time uh, digging into code bases that were open source because I just wanted to see how they were built and trying to figure out why they did things the way that they did. And that is really valuable as an engineer. But actually getting like a pull request out and getting it merged is not. And the other thing is like, just be nice, like both ways. Like I try to be super nice to our people who are trying to contribute. I try to be really understanding when they've taken their time and we didn't give them what they needed to know not to do something. And I, I try to take responsibility for when those things happen. So that's part of it too, is just like being accountable to like, well, how did I let a contributor not know that they were you know, doing something that wasn't going to get merged, those types of things. So working in the open source space doesn't absolve you of the responsibility to actually collaborate. <laughs> Just because something is open doesn't mean that you do whatever you feel like it. Well, because the code is open, so I can just add whatever code, remove whatever code, modify things. <laughs> so there, there's that tricky balance. And I like your point about this going both ways, because fostering good contributions does require you to work with the contributors and having them feel like they're respected, they are uh, appreciated. And the fact that they did spend their time, you know, creating an issue or filing a bug, even if it's not going to get accepted. Because even from my own experience, I know that a couple of times I'd work on a project and I'd pull some open source, you know, library and whatnot. And at first I totally understand it's unpaid labor, right? Yeah. So it's like, who am I to ask them to fix something? But then you open an issue, they're like, you did not provide the required information. Close. Like, well, I didn't know I need to provide it. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I'm happy to provide that information, but like, why be a jerk about it? Yes. Yeah. And we have like very clear... Uh, not only guidelines for what we need you to include in the issue, but we provide you with code sandboxes to get you started on providing a reproduction. Because the truth is, without a reproduction, we probably can't dig into what's going on. And 
if you can't reproduce it, it points to it's probably an issue on on your specific setup or your specific machine. So it's going to be really difficult for us to dig into. But it's up to the open source maintainers to make that really clear and to work on those guidelines. And I love you being like, yeah, it doesn't absolve you from collaboration. Yeah, I have bad news for engineers. There is nothing in this field that absolves you from collaboration. I'm sorry. There is just nothing. There, there is no world in which you don't have to talk to a person at some point and figure things out together. Get used to it. Work on those skills. <laughs> you know, like I actually use a service called Grammarly when I write um, my responses to people just to make sure that like my tone is like friendly and I'm coming off nice. You know, it's important. Right. And especially because, you know, in our industry, we have this trope of like the genius engineer, right? That's like, I just know exactly what to do. And y'all cannot question me. Like that, that never happens. Like every single project that I work with, like somebody will look at my code and say, actually, like you can improve this other part here. And like, ah, I didn't think about it. Also, if you talk to anyone who's ever worked with someone like that, they're likely to tell you horror stories, right? They're likely to tell you about the things that broke because this person didn't bother to ask anyone or just like how they felt working with this person. But to be honest, it's almost likely like they took down prod. They did this thing that nobody expected them to do and they didn't have a warning like all the time. It's like it's never good. And in those cases, there's always an excuse like, well, actually, you did not build prod correctly. And I fixed <laughs> it. So now, you know. Yes, I, I fixed it for you. Yeah, like what's the process? Because big projects require a lot of time, a lot of commitment, a lot of effort. We mentioned earlier that there is work that you're doing already as an employee of the company that needs to be done. And at the same time, you need to triage issues, engage with collaborators. What's that balance between those two sets of responsibilities? Because usually that is hard because, again, it takes a lot of time to manage an open source project, let alone one that is very actively used. Yes. So I get I get very stressed when I'm working on something that's not triaging issues because then I'll go and I'll look at the issue count and it's slowly going up and I'm just sitting here being like, no, 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 no. But I need to concentrate on this thing. So there are some days that I actually like, I don't go to the repo in an effort to like not have that anxiety of watching that issue count like creep up slowly while I'm trying to do something else. There's no real, I would say, set balance between me doing research and development or working on, for instance, like a new API or triaging issues and maybe fixing some of those bugs, right? There's actually no set like amount. It really has to do with what I want to prioritize that week and what my team has decided is the, the priority for us. So if the issues are kind of like piling up, I kind of want to go triage and like see if there's anything that's gone wrong lately that we need to fix, batch some things, maybe close some comments or ask for reproductions. Those always feel like really nice. If I need to work on something else that's like, well, actually this issue is a, a legit bug and we need to get a fix out soon, I will close down GitHub. <laughs> And I will work on that until it is complete. And then I will go back to something else. It's really up to me personally, what I want to do, talking with my team. It's also up to like me to manage my like stress levels with these types of things. I feel like that is more pertinent in open source than I thought it was going to be. Like my emotional regulation is like, has to be like way higher because I don't actually know every day what I'm going to be working on. And you're essentially okay 
with the fact that there are some of these unknown unknowns. I wouldn't say I'm okay with it. I've said I've been living with it for like a year. And it is, it's really hard not to have those like set boundaries of product work. So actually right now, I'm actually taking a break from open source and I'm working on a product team in Apollo to give myself some break to make sure that like I'm still doing okay with these sort of unknown unknowns about the project. I like that. I like the refresher in the career path because sometimes doing the same thing over and over can lead to burnout. I don't know. I've experienced a lot of that where you're just kind of like, I'm just tired. I don't want to touch any of this. Yeah. And and usually, so my whole career has been in startups. And in a lot of cases, there isn't the opportunity for you to move teams because you're probably on the one team or one of two. And you're like, you know, who's on the other team. And you're like, no, I'm not going to go to that team. Like that happens a lot in startups where you join for one team. And after a year, you're like, I would like to do something else. And to do that, you have to actually leave the company. I'm really enjoying being able to be like, I need to work on product for a bit. Can you please, can I go work on a product team? Oh, this feels so good. Yes, daily stand-ups. Oh, yes, little tickets that I can grab. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Generally, change of scenery, I found it to be super helpful, even for me, across companies, teams, Because doing the same thing too long, it literally makes you go, I don't want to be in this industry anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But then all of a sudden you're like, you do something else and you're like, "Eh, maybe I'll stick around for some time. It's like an, because it's an endless marathon. You know, I worked at one company that like every time we got like a major project done, there was not even a moment to like step back and celebrate. It was just like, let's slot the next work in. And you just get tired because you're like, oh, this is never going to end. And it won't. You got to switch teams. You got to go do something else or, you know, take a take a very long vacation. Sometimes that's that's good enough for you. But sometimes you just need to switch what, what you're working on to like, you know, keep going in this field. Also, like sometimes you can just feel like every problem got solved or like the problems are too big to be solved. So it's just like a whole bunch of different things that could happen. So do not subscribe to hustle culture on a <laughs> continuous basis. It's okay to do it in moderation, but not on a continuous basis. I do not subscribe to hustle culture, and I don't think anyone should. I just, mm-mm, no, you're, that's a recipe for burnout. It's a recipe for like, you know, really having a, the wrong concept of like what your value is in the world. There's more to life than writing code. Surprisingly... Yes, there is an outside world. I know for the past year, it's been like, there is no outside world. But I promise you, there's an outside world. (laughs) Speaking of careers, and we kind of started GraphQL, talked about open source, but you had a pretty extensive career as well. And you mentioned that you worked at startups before. Until you got to Apollo, what was your path like? How did you get into the space? So way back in the day when I went to college, I majored in English and creative writing. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet. I thought maybe I would want to be a lawyer. That was a bad, bad choice. I actually always like very longingly looked at the computer science like degree program. And then I saw like the math requirements and I was like, well, no, mm, that's not going to work. So I didn't know that I was going to be in this field. I didn't even think I could do it. I thought like, this is math. I need to know calculus to do this job. Obviously, this isn't going to work. 
I'm really good at uh, sentence structure, creative writing. I'm sure I can parlay that into some sort of career somewhere. I ended up working in marketing. I worked as a content, a web content manager for the Science and Entertainment Exchange, which was a part of the National Academy of Sciences. I was working on their website, like writing all the content for it and keeping the website up to date and working on all their social media. And I had to like learn a bit of HTML and CSS. I had played with these things when I was a kid. And so this was kind of a refresher for me. And as I was doing it, like this light bulb went off of like, wait, I could just teach myself how to do this, can't I? I think I can. And like that is basically like too long, don't read. I retaught myself HTML, CSS. I taught myself JavaScript and I eventually parlayed that into a career. I worked for Ralph Lauren in their marketing department, building their content system. And then I left to go work in startups and I have been there for, oh, I'd say nine years now. Wow. And you're breaking again, the stereotypical path of you absolutely need to have a computer science degree to work in tech. You, you don't, you really do not. <laughs> I've met product managers that are biology majors. I've recently talked to somebody on this podcast that they went from thinking about doing med school to deciding to go into tech. There are just so many paths to do that. And it resonated with me, the, the math component, because I personally love math, but there's so many things in the computer science curriculum that I struggled with that thinking about it back and like, oh my goodness, we are like scaring so many people away from this industry by these like rigid requirements. I remember my intro to, I think intro to algorithms class. And I was like, all right, I'm not really good at algos, but I'll try it. And they throw you into C from all the languages to study it. So it's horrifying. You start learning about like the pointers and it's like, I, it has nothing to do with algos. Like I'm learning more about and trying to struggling to figure out how to work with C and it's cryptic errors instead of actually solving a problem. Like how many people were actually alienating from this industry by saying, actually, I don't care about C. I want to write JavaScript because I'm good at web dev. You know, and, and thinking back, like how many times have you actually used C if you're a web dev? <laughs> Probably not a lot. Doesn't excuse the fact that, yeah, maybe you'll need some understanding of how does WebAssembly work and what's the intermediary process, but it's not that requirement. I cannot stress enough that you don't have to know calculus to do this job. And that depending on where you're wanting to go in this field, you may not need that hardcore algorithm knowledge for front end. You often do not need to know algorithms, you will need to know data structures, but it's different than if you're working on a backend language. There are things in JavaScript that we didn't even have until a few years ago, like maps and sets, like the other languages, like if you were to ask about data structures, like I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you like what a set is like several years ago. And also the really important thing is you can learn everything. You can learn everything. You can learn everything you need to know. I like, I promise you, like, if you want to go get the degree, you go get the degree. You do it. Good for you. I am happy for anyone who wants to go get a degree and who feels like they need that in their back pocket. I totally get it. But if you also just want to teach yourself, you can, in fact, do it. It's very hard, but you can do it. And as you are going along in your career, no matter which path you took, you are going to have to learn things. There are going to be new things that come out. People who have been working in this field longer are going to teach you things. That is the part of the job that is never actually going to stop. 
So beyond like, oh, I need to know big O or anything like that. No, I, what you need to know is how you learn. Figure out how you learn. It will be one of the biggest assets to you in your career. If you can figure out, this is how I take in information. This is how I get it into my brain. This is how I can conceptualize things. That is the most important thing for you. The key part here too is that I, I'm now thinking about it. You brought it up and like, it reminded me of the tweet from, I think it was Tim Urban who posted that. And he said, if you're reading an article that makes you feel stupid or that you don't understand, it was a poorly written article <laughs> like or a tutorial. If you're reading a tutorial that teaches you how to do something and you come on the other end saying, okay, I get it. It clicks with me now. It means that whoever wrote it put a lot of effort into it. And thinking back about some of the coursework, the fact that I did not understand it well, it was not because I'm not good at X. It's just because it precisely like you called out, I did not know how to learn. It yeah. was not tailored to my approach of figuring this out. And I struggle with this too when I try to get into machine learning. And you read all these articles and they're like, you know that that meme about like how to draw like an owl and like start with a circle and then draw the rest of the owl? Like that's exactly how I felt. It's like I don't get it. But then you read a good book that's written, I think it was by the PyTorch founders or the original engineers. And it's like it clicked. And it's the exact same material. It's the exact same product. It's how it was delivered and how I could learn from it. So I love the idea of kind of the meta skill. Figure out how to learn and that that unlocks a lot of a lot of doors. Yeah. But you went through a, I want to say like a less traditional path to technology. Do you feel like the your knowledge and skills in writing and kind of putting together a good narrative helped you become a better engineer? Yes. Now, the caveat being that that doesn't mean that you you need a background in English to be a good engineer. I just think that the way that my brain works, the way that I conceptualize and think about things and the way that I structure things has a lot to do with that background. And those were skills that were with me since I was very young. I was already like my teachers, my parents, they knew I like to write. I'm good at it. I like to be descriptive in the things that I do. It is no surprise to me that I became a front end developer because I like visual things. I like creating narratives. And to me, that is what front-end development is. Especially, no surprise to me that I love React, like that that's been one of my frameworks. I actually gave a talk at React 2019 back when we had conferences in the before times. It was called React is Fiction. And it was about that learning of mine of like what it means to translate the principles that I learned from fiction to React and how well that has supported me in creating components in React in my career. The theme that I'm hearing is that you're focusing a lot on the website of technology. Why is that? Because it's also a hotly debated topic when folks early in their career ask, well, should I go into mobile development? Should I do web, games? There's just so many options and you chose web. Why was that? I chose web because I knew that things being visually represented to me on a screen was really important to how I learn. I'm very visual. When I work on any project, when it's not going to be um, something that I can push to the web and see. Uh, so when I'm working with Apollo client where it's just a JavaScript library and I'm probably looking in like my console or my dev tools at something. I'm often taking things and translating them into notes that I can see visually. 
So I'll take an array and I'll actually write it out what it's supposed to look like. That's really important for me just to be able to visually see things. So my partner is actually a backend engineer and we just joke all the time about how very different our respective like career paths are. Because I'm like, yeah, look at all these things that I built that you can visually represent. And he's like, yes, for mine, you can see that I made this graph line look like this graph line. And that was my work. But I promise you, I did a lot of things underneath. (laughs) So it's just like way, way less visual. um, And that's how I kind of picked it. I have over time like dabbled in other little things, but I keep coming back to web as my home front and something that I just really enjoy. I've also just never been able to get bored in web, which was a big plus for me, that there, as much as it can be like very overwhelming also to have to keep learning, it is also good for me to always have something new to dive into on the front end. It reminds me of the conversation that I had with one of the uh, SREs on a former team that I worked with when they're like, we're so excited to show me that we now have the op time of 99.999 instead of 99.99. I was like, how's it different, right? It's, like, <laughs> it's kind of the same, right? Like, no, but it's an extra nine. It's much more reliable. Like, is it? No. <laughs> they were so excited about it. And they're like, oh, like we found this perf optimization that now we know exactly. Like, and to me, it just did not click. I was like, oh, yeah, as a product manager, sure. I guess it's better, but it's still 99%. So yes. <laughs> oh, I feel so sad for them. I feel like every time he's like, look, my graph. It does the thing. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wish I could be more jazzed about it. Our uptime this month was 17. Like, yeah, 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 for sure. Oh, <laughs> so I know. You see that line. The work they're doing is like so, so hard, but they don't have like all the visual stuff to like show it. I know. Right? Well, now that you mentioned it, that's so true. Because as a backend engineer, if somebody asks, okay, so what are you building? It's like, well, you know, you go to this website.com. That's me behind the scenes. Like, but which part of it can you show me? Like, yeah, it's it's there. Trust me. You know how your name shows up on the screen? I made it possible for your name to show up on the screen. Right, right, right. <laughs> you don't need to log in. The web actually evolves very, very fast. And yes. I want to know, how do you keep up with everything that's going on? Because to me... Every time I read Reddit or Hacker News or anything web-related, every day there's a new framework, there's a new approach to doing things the right way and an approach to do things the wrong way, apparently. And jQuery is apparently not the new hotness lately. So how do you keep up with everything and make sure that you know what things are changing in the space? All right, here's my my secret. I don't, I don't. <laughs> the secret is I don't, I don't keep up with everything. I, I choose very specifically the things I want to keep up with, right? And usually that has to do with what I'm doing at my job. So right now, I want to keep up with GraphQL. I want to keep up with React because it's very important that Apollo Client is agnostic about what framework you use it for, but a lot of our users use it with React. And so it's important to me to keep up with that space. Things I'm not going to pay attention to currently, CSS. I love CSS, actually. I adore, I adore CSS, and I love making things pretty. But right now, if you're going to talk to me about, like, what's going on in the CSS community, I haven't had the time, nor is it really important to my day-to-day work to keep up with that. Now, I'm shifting back into product work for a little bit, so I'm probably going to actually have to go and see what I missed. What's nice about this approach is that 
you have decided what's really important to you and you can figure out the resources that work for what you're doing. You can change it over time as your job changes. And if you need to go back and learn something that was, you know, coming out like in CSS, like that I've missed over the past year, there are probably really good resources for it now. There's probably less hype around everything. So you can actually like winnow down like what you actually want to learn and what you want to focus on instead of new framework every day. Well, after a year, most of those frameworks don't exist. So you can just go look at the ones that made it. <laughs> so there are some nice things about like that approach. Now, that means that, you know, when I talk to people who are engineers and they're like, oh, blah, 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 and they're talking about something I don't know, sometimes I can feel a little like, oh, I missed out that little FOMO feeling. But also then I'll just be like, yo, you're jazzed about this. Tell me more about it. I personally have encountered that issue where I wrote so much Python and C-sharp code lately that I totally missed the train on this thing called SCSS, which apparently introduces variables. And recently I was going to remodel my blog and I realized, what's this SCSS file? And I had to read <laughs> up on it. I did not know this thing existed. But it's because, again, it changes so fast that I, yeah, just couldn't keep up with all the web stuff that's happening. And if you probably that's why I'm much more comfortable writing like system level code than it is with web. Does it matter for folks early in their career to, I want to say specialize around a specific tool chain or framework because from a career perspective or potential growth perspective or somebody that doesn't work yet at a company and wants to work somewhere, they usually look at these things where oh my gosh, like monster.com has 17 million jobs asking for AngularJS and not React. And these kind of benchmarks that I don't fully subscribe to, I don't think they're that important. Does it matter which framework or language you choose early on in your career to kind of get started? The complete and total truth is I don't know because it's been a long time since I was in that position. So I'm not actually really sure. I can just tell you what I did. But at the time that I did what I did, frameworks were not such a big deal. So I learned HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and that's pretty much what I focused on. Now, jQuery was really popular at the time, so I did learn jQuery. I think if something is really popular at the time, it's good to work with it. If you want to like keep, if it like just really clicks with you, oh my God, go with that then. By all means, like if it really clicks, then what you're setting yourself up for is to know something really well and to get deeper with it. And that's not a bad thing. But just forcing yourself to learn a framework because someone told you it was the new hotness or like there's a lot of searches for Angular. I don't know. I don't know that I would have done that at the time. I, I just mostly went with like, oh, I will tell you that what I did, though, is I looked at a lot of job listings. And I looked to see what were their required skills and what were their nice-to-haves. And that did help me sort of figure out what I, I wanted to focus on in terms of like trying to get that first job. So to your meta point earlier, learn how to learn because... Learn how to learn. If the frameworks change and tomorrow it's going to be Vue.js, that is going to be the best thing. Well, if you know how to operate and make sure that you can you know, quickly figure out how it works and how to plug it in, it's going to help you way more than subscribing and saying, I'm a Java developer and Java developer forever because we don't know. 
We don't. People make different claims about how you should go about this when you are earlier in your career and you want to get that first job or you're trying to get your second job, right? And a lot of people point to like, go back to basics. Um, So go back to HTML, CSS, and JavaScript because anything that's going to be built on the web is going to be built with those in mind. I can't say if that's like a hundred bulletproof like point, but I do think it's valuable to know the things that in your field are staying constant and the things that are actually changing. And that'll help you sort of like figure out your roadmap for learning things. That's a good one. So learn the fundamentals, understand how to compare a number with a string in JavaScript and what the perils of that are. And was like, was it like a couple of years ago that Batman talk of like the no, 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 no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that I was about that. Right? That was so funny. The, the funny things about JavaScript that it doesn't matter which framework you use. At the end of the day, it all is JavaScript or it's all CSS. It's all HTML. How does that work? And I, I really like that approach. So it's starting with the foundations instead of the layers on kind of the, the nice to have wrappers on top of it. But go also with what makes sense to you, because I have heard also that people start with some frameworks and then go to the basics because the frameworks just help them get something going quicker. That's not a wrong way to do it. Do whatever is going to work best, again, for your learning style. What is your personal learning style? My personal learning style is that I need to read multiple resources on something. I need like five to six articles on something. I have a lot of questions. I will go into rabbit holes to try and figure them out and then come back to an article. I am very like, I hop here, I hop over there, I hop there, I hop there. I like to have just a ton of resources when I'm learning something. When I learned TypeScript, I bought like three books and a course and something else. And I will do them all bit by bit as I learn things. So that's really like how I like enjoy learning. And when I get stuck, I need to figure it out. And so I will go down that rabbit hole to get unstuck. So what it sounds like, it's not only just reading, but also applying it. It's actually learning by doing. Because I think that's the mistake that a lot of folks also make is they can say, you know, I watched 10 YouTube videos and I still don't get it. Yeah, because you didn't try any of it. The fact that you watched 10 YouTube videos doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I need uh, the combination of the two things. So I need to be reading about the technology, playing around with the technology, seeing someone else use the technology, and combining all those things actually really helps cement it in my brain. I love doing like practice exercises When I am curious about like why something isn't working, the first thing I do too is I open up my browser console and I start to write code. I'm just like, well, what does this work the way my brain has conceptualized it? Yes, no, give me the quick information about if this works the way I think it does. And that usually helps me. So skill growth, very important. What about career growth? What's your thinking around the progression on the engineering career ladder? I hear that often from folks that I mentor and they're like, well, I want to become a senior engineer. How do I get there? (laughs) How should they be thinking about their progression from the very beginning? And again, from your own experience, how did that work? So, okay. My own experience was that I worked for a year and a half for Ralph Lauren in their marketing team. I wasn't really growing as an engineer. I was using a lot of... it wasn't a very difficult job, that one in particular. So I actually had a lot of free time. And, and I spent that like doing JavaScript courses and playing around with things and making prototypes and stuff. And that got me into my next career um, or my next job. And I still would say I was like 
pretty junior at the time. I'm So I'm not a big fan of the term junior. I prefer to say people are early in their career. And that's mostly because people just tend to say junior in a really derogatory way. And I just don't like it. They're like, oh, well, they're a junior engineer. Like, they're just early in their career. Why are we talking to them like this? As uh, early in my career engineer, I didn't really understand what it meant to get to the next level. And I kind of thought it just had to do with how much knowledge you had about the thing you were working with. So I just thought like, oh, okay, so the seniors, they always have the answer for why something's not working in JavaScript. So if I just learn JavaScript really well, then I'll get to mid-level and then I'll just get to senior. Yeah, that's not actually quite how it works. I mean, you do need to know a good deal of information about the thing you're working with, but still to this day, and I've been working with JavaScript for nine years now, there are things about JavaScript that I'm just totally going to blank on and totally going to forget or haven't even worked with because it's a freaking large language. And so that's not really what makes a senior. You do need to know the thing you're working with and you need to know it well enough to get your job done. But here are some other things you need to know to get to that next step. How to find out information. How? How do you find out why something isn't working? How do you find out how to make it work? How do you find out how to build something in the first place? These are really important things for you to do uh, as you progress in your career. And what I find mostly is early career engineers are, are confused about how to find out information. How do you debug? This is one of the most important things you can ever possibly do in your career is figure out how to debug things and how to do it well. And not enough people put a lot of resources or time or attention into debugging. But the seniors that come in and can quickly figure out like why something is the way it is, that's a really powerful skill that makes everyone else around them a 10x engineer. They can come in and help you figure out how to debug things. Super, super valuable. Knowing when to prioritize things. This is a big deal that no one teaches you. You're going to learn this on the job. How do you prioritize your work? How do you know when you're stuck and you need help? How do you then go and get that help? How do you explain the problem that you're having? How do you explain the ways that you worked around the problem? Giving the other person enough information to come in and help you, those types of things. And then some of the biggest things that you never get taught about is like how to talk to other people, <laughs> how to do code reviews. How to be nice when you don't want to be. Uh, <laughs> there's just like so many things about being a senior that are not language specific or how much you know about a thing. That last point around communication is something that I feel like a lot more people need to understand it really quickly that how you talk to other people and how you make other people feel will drive a lot, a lot, a lot of your career progression over the long term. Yes. It's so missed. Yeah. I, a couple of years ago, had a, what is known as a come to Jesus moment where I had to realize that I had taken on some like bad behavior because of how the other senior engineers in my previous jobs had talked to people. And I just thought that's how you do it. And I had to have a moment realizing that is not how you do it. And no, like you were not like technically trained by your previous senior engineers to do things like give compliments, but you're going to have to actually do that. You have to be nicer than the people were in your past. Just because you went through those things in your career does not mean that you need to then perpetuate the cycle. This is included for interviewing as well. 
if you had to go through a really horrible interviewing process, you don't have to make the future people go through those interviewing processes. You don't have to do it. I also find it very, very important, the point that you're calling out around even disagreement, because not always will you agree with people. And how you bring up that disagreement, again, impacts a lot of how people perceive you and how they will treat you through your career. If you yes. disagree with somebody and you reply to an email with a reply all and just say, under what authority are you making this decision? And you're like, all right, that's that can be a little bit of a not the right approach to go about it versus, hey, I see this decision is being made. I want to understand more what what's the underlying reason just so that we make sure we're on the same page. Kind of communicating the same message, but in a way different approach to do that. Yeah, super different. And to be honest, some of this like disagreement thing is the really age old advice about like pick pick your battles. I love to come back to like what what are we doing here? Oh, we're we're building a website. Okay. So this doesn't matter that much. Okay. All right. Cool. So it's okay if we disagree on this or we go with your suggestion. We're just building a website. It's fine. <laughs> Do you really want to die on this hill? Like is this is this something like oh we're, let's argue for 3 days over which security model like it's important. We can pick one that solves the problem. Let's just go with that. Because in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Like you're look, going to look back at it in a year. It's going to be another one anyway. Yeah. Who cares? It just To be honest, a lot of our decisions like end up not mattering at some point. Right. Right. A hundred percent. It's the things that I'm thinking back of the, you know, I helped drive when I first started my career. It's like none of this stuff matters. Most of the stuff I wrote is, is, is not even there anymore. Okay. Like most of my old code is gone. I think that's another very important point for engineers to realize is don't get too attached to the things that you're building because you might find a better way to do this in a year and five years, 10 years, whenever. But just because you built this now doesn't mean that you have to like protect it at all costs. Like nobody changed this. Nobody touched this. It's mine. It doesn't matter. It just, just do things that are impactful, that are important and solve a customer problem. That's all. Yeah. And do it in a nice way that people actually enjoy working with you. <laughs> but just be nice. Yeah, right. I think that's going to be the sum summary of this entire podcast. But Jen, in addition to being an engineer, you're also a fantastic speaker. How did you develop that muscle? How did you become a, what, what, well, I want to even take a step back. What helped you become a good speaker? Because again, common trope. Engineers, very introverted, not really good at speaking to people or even about things that they might be passionate about. What worked for you? I am an introvert, like a hardcore introvert. Like when lockdown happened, I was like, I am going to be good. I am good through all of this. I don't need to see anyone. And like for months, that was true. I did really well with it. But I do really love public speaking, which is wild because it, public speaking is one of those things that people are so afraid of. Like they will say, I would rather die than public speak. Like, you know, and I'm like, ah, it's a near-death experience. And I seem to get a thrill out of it. Great. To be honest, like some some of my speaking ability is just really natural. Like I have a voice that carries. Like it just does. I can't help that. And I just really like to tell stories and be really animated in front of people, even though I'm an introvert. But the other thing that I've done is I put a lot of care and time into my talks and I practice the hell out of them. I will be in my hotel room before a conference talk, practicing the talk, practicing the talk, 
practicing the talk, making sure it's good, doing it with my coworkers, making sure my voice is not monotone, being really, really uh, like, I'm not a big fan of always being critical with yourself, but when you're public speaking, be critical of what you're putting out there. Record yourself. Look at what you're doing. It is like very helpful if you want to get into that space to like be able to look at what you're doing and have like a really good sense of if it's good or not, if you would be enthused to watch that talk or not. And it's super awkward to listen to yourself talk at first. And I remember when I first started <laughs> this podcast and then one of the folks that I was talking to, they're like, you should start listening to yourself and catching the things that you say and how you say it. And I was like, I don't listen to myself. I don't want to hear my voice like for an hour. Are you kidding me? But then you start doing that and you're like, huh, I actually use the word like quite a bit or I say this one right. thing quite a bit. Maybe I should say it less. But nobody else will tell you other than yourself looking at that tape and seeing how you're doing that. Yeah. And we all have little things that we just do like naturally saying like is one of them. I do it too. They're so I say, I like I love to say 100%. I'm like 100%. Yes, 100%. And I'm like, you've got to stop saying 100%. Not everything is 100%. doesn't equal 100%, girl. But who's going to tell you that other than yourself, right? Like a lot of people will be like, <laughs> right. because if if you ask people about the talks or presentations, like, hey, it went great. That was good. But no, no this no, is not yeah. what I'm looking for. Tell me how I can improve. Yeah, no, it was good for you. Sure. What can I do better? There's 100% ah, <laughs> the word that we can do better. For an engineer that is wanting to become a good public speaker, where should they start? What should be their starting point? Now, you right now, obviously, there's not the same type of opportunities that were around when I started speaking, which I mean, like, actually being in person with the people. So things are a little different right now. If you want to get into public speaking, I would, um, you're, you're welcome to do it now. But a lot of the times now what you're doing is you're recording the video and sending it off. If you want to do it in person when we're back to in-person conferences, you can either apply to conferences or to meetups. It is really up to you what you want to do. But one of my other favorite things is start speaking at your company. Talk at your company. Talk in small groups at your company. If you have a bunch of front-end engineers, make a meeting, throw it on the calendar, show them something interesting that you've done, and just get used to that. Then you can start doing meetups and conferences. Or if you want to do it the other way, go big. Go for the conferences. Go for the meetups. You know, you'll have like a lot of lessons either way. But the most important thing is that you just like get yourself out there and practice as much as possible. And people are generally very receptive to these, what I refer to them as lunch and learn, where I'm just going to show yes. you my project and it can be a half an hour presentation. Doesn't need to be very long, but just like, hey, here's this cool thing that I built. And I think it helps our team. Yeah, people love it. Yeah. Like, it helps everyone. It gives you a good reputation in your company. Like definitely do right. it. And as with everything else, it takes practice. Jen, now that we know some of your career and you've had a very, very fascinating journey, knowing what you know now about the things that you've built in terms of your career, your growth, what is one uncommon advice that you would give folks early in their career that you feel is important to know or internalize early on that might not have been obvious early in your, your own career? The thing I've been learning over the past couple of years is actually the undoing of internalizing messages that were given to me in tech. And as much as possible, while we have to do certain things to get the roles that we want, 
be seen a certain way. This happens all the time if you're underrepresented or you're marginalized in this field that you have to conform to the larger set of things just to get a little farther. Know that once you've done that, you do not have to keep playing that role. As soon as you get some authority and some power, you can really change how things are done. So for instance, like I fight for a very different interviewing structure and a different set of criteria for people because there is no need to put them under the stress that I have been in under my career for those types of things. Once you start, kind of once you're in the door, focus on finding ways to make it easier or better for folks that come after you. Yeah. And you can't always do it like right away, like when you're earlier in your career, but Later on, like, just don't think that you have to be like everyone else was to you. You really don't. That's like the debate around, you know, college loans. Where it was like, well, I paid my loans. Why should we not have like, why not make it easier for exactly. everyone else? Why would, why would you fight for keeping the status quo? Well, I had to study cracking the coding interview to get a job. Well, okay. Why do we have to make that the thing that you have to do for all of your life? I don't get it. Right. Like maybe whiteboard interviews are not the best way to go about hiring engineers. A strange concept for sure. Right. Just because we've done it this <laughs> way. And that's another thing for engineers. Like just because you've done it this way doesn't mean it has to be done this way. So to yes. uh, get the kind of the conclusion of this podcast, uh, Jen, where can folks find you online? So I am pretty active on Twitter. My handle is girl code, girl with a U. I also have my own podcast called Single Threaded. It just wrapped up its first season. Uh, later this year, we'll do season two. So check that out. It's been a pleasure having you here, Jen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.